I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there with got you, got you. What got you there with Sean Delaney? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I am so excited to bring you today's episode with New York Times bestselling author, Daniel Coyle. Now, I've wanted to have Daniel on the show for years now because the impact his book, The Culture Code, had on me. It's actually the book I give out most to people running teams or organizations and want to better understand high-performing groups because Daniel's been spending decades now studying high-performing organizations that include Navy SEALs, Microsoft, Google, and the Cleveland Guardians. And he really has done a deeper dive than probably anyone else on this planet in what makes these high-performing organizations and their culture. And he actually has a new book out now called The Culture Playbook that takes those ideas and gives you the exercises and practices that you can implement them into your own organization to bring out your company or your team's culture. And that's what we dive into. I dive into what Daniel's learned after all these years studying the most elite groups, what we can do in our own organizations, and what are the foundational principles that cultures build on. So if you're interested in high performance and high performing teams, then you'll love this conversation with Daniel Coyle. I am thrilled to tell you about my new online personal growth course called You Unleashed. You Unleashed is for those people looking to burst through the walls of their previous limitations and fears and tap into their greater potential, or what I call your You Unleashed self. This course is a culmination of the best things I've learned being a professional athlete, entrepreneur, investor, and spending thousands of hours sitting down with world-class performers on this podcast to uncover what you need to raise your potential to a new level. This course is going to give you clarity of what an extraordinary life looks like and who you need to become in order to achieve that life. Now, I'll provide you with the mindsets, behaviors, and actions you need to bring out your unleashed self. You'll uncover your deeper why, your values, and your life philosophy that will guide you moving forward. So the question is, why haven't you unleashed your full potential yet? You only get one shot at this life, so what are you waiting for? You're meant to become extraordinary. We all are. So if you're interested in stepping into your potential and cultivating the type of life you've been dreaming of, then check out my You Unleashed course by clicking below or going to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed and because you listen to the podcast i'm giving you 50 percent off the entire course for a limited time by using code wgyt that's what got you there.com forward slash you dash unleashed and use code wgyt for 50 percent off daniel welcome to what got you there how are you doing today 
Thanks for having me, Sean. It's fun to be with you. Yeah. Appreciate you having me on the show. No, I'm so excited to dive into this. I mean, your work has been instrumental for me with some of the organizations, some of the teams I've been a part of. Uh, and it was funny just kind of getting ready for this conversation. Uh, I'm not like just saying this. Your book is one of the books I've shared with most people who are running teams or organizations. This is why I'm really excited to dive into this. But I actually want to start with you and uncovering a bit more about you. So for yourself personally throughout your career, has there been a mindset of yours that if you could just pass on to anyone starting out? you think would be incredibly beneficial for them because it's been beneficial for you? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say be more stupid. I think that's something that has helped me a lot in the past. And, uh, and by stupid, I mean when you encounter a, a, a thing right in front of your nose that's kind of a mystery, um, like a you know, big question, like what makes, you know, why, why is that team so great? You know, why... Why is that school so nice to be in? Why is that bakery so delightful? Like, just stop for a second and just ask some big, dumb questions. Like, what are they doing there? What exactly is going on? Like, slowing down in a world where we're always going so fast. I've always found that um, being thinking like an outsider and being kind of purposefully stupid has been really helpful. Uh, I was, I was raised in Alaska. And so I always had a bit of an outsider point of view where you'd come down to the, what we call the lower 48. You'd say, wow, things are different down here. I wonder why this is. And that is, has been something that has left me in good stead throughout, you know, cause really when it comes down to the stuff I've looked at performance as an individual level performance on a kind of a team level, it all comes down to saying, huh, wonder, wonder what that's made of. Like, that seems really cool. wonder what's behind that. Because there's so many things in our life we think or we sort of think of them as magic, right? They're just great. They're just magic. Um, and they're not. There's like a thing there. And, and so being attuned to the presence of specialness and then being able to sort of stop and be, ask a big dumb question about it. I, I'd even love to go into the, the concept overall. Uh, the way I think about it is slowing down to speed up, right? Like if you can't even slow down enough to ask those big questions, you're not going to be able to advance your, your career, your team further in the future. So, so how do you think about that concept in just the, the go, 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 fast paced nature world we're living in right now? No, I love that question. No, I, I think about it a lot, actually. You know, I just wrote this book called The Culture Playbook, and I've been thinking about it lately, and I think it could be called the, the pause book. Um, I think productivity, the pausing is like the new productivity. The world is really good. The world has never been better at, at giving you a to-do list and at congratulating you for making it through it and handing you another one and then handing you another one and handing you another one. And most of us in our careers, we're just given these lists and we just crank through them. But all learning, all development, all growth is a loop. The top loop is experience. The bottom of the loop is reflection, right? Where you make sense of that experience. You build a mental model. What, what was that? What changed? What do I now know that I didn't know? How did that change how I perceive that type of challenge? And the world has been stealing the bottom of the loop from us, like, like keeping us so busy, if you think back in your own lives, how much reflection you had 10 years ago, how much time you took, maybe people used to keep journal entries and stuff, that sort of moment where you pause either as an individual or as a team and say, what, what just happened? Like, what, how did that change us? What went right? What went wrong? What should we do differently? And, and those asking those sorts of questions, I think, is the most productive thing you can do. Um, in the book, I have 60 different actions and they're all, they all involve stopping what you're doing. Like, like they all involve, like, like you always have this choice at work between like, get the project done, get the project done or stop. And stopping often feels wrong. 
Like it feels like you're wasting time. It feels like we're not getting it done. There's a, there's a great uh, sort of concept that, that this one group uses, IDEO. They're a great design firm. Some of your listeners might have heard of them. But they have something called team tune-ups. They do it three times every project. It's a pre-flight. It's a mid-flight. It's a post-flight. Every project's a trip, right? Every project's a journey. Um, and they are they're on the plane. They're flying the plane. So pre-flight, they ask these really simple questions like, what do we want to learn here? You know, what's this going to look like if it goes wrong? What's this going to look like if it goes right? Mid-flight, they ask, how's it going? Like, is everybody still energized? Does, is this, are we going where we thought we were going? Or have we uncovered some new landscape here? And in the end, you ask these similar sort of deep questions. Did, did this produce what we wanted? What else should we connect here? What else? How did this change us? And you're continually moving your, it's just like a, a pit crew at a, at a Formula One race. Like the car doesn't just race around all the time. They pull in and they fuel up and they check things. And that's what good teams do. And that's what I think good learners do is they're, they're building out on that, the reflection part of the loop by having these very productive pauses, these very productive pauses. And this isn't just conceptual. Like there was a great study that Francesca Gino did where they, they trained groups of people to do the same task and they did them, did them, did them, did them. But one group got the opportunity to reflect for 15 minutes a day about the task. And it wasn't a very complex task, but they just reflected about it. And at the end, they, they were 20% more productive just because they had taken the time and they didn't guide the reflection or anything. They just said, think about it. And, and that act of thinking about it makes our brains work in new ways and makes us see in new ways that end up making us more efficient. So when you're pausing, it feels inefficient. When you're pausing, it feels like a waste of time. It feels like you should get back to your to-do list. But in fact, it's by far the most important thing you can do. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, pausing is something I try to do frequently. I build it into my own life. But like even the, the initial start, right? Like I'm going to go for a long walk just to really like chew on an idea. There's always that like initial tension, like, wait a second, shouldn't, shouldn't I be doing something? So right. I'm just wondering, what, what does this pause reflect look like in your own life? Because you highlight so brilliantly that you need that pause at the bottom of the circle there to be able to learn, move forward. So how do you think about that just in your own life? And I hope we can talk about it in some different organizations you've been involved with. Yeah, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of different forms. I mean, sometimes depending on where I am on a project, um, it'll just be in, in daily life, you know, taking that walk or starting the day by trying to sort of zoom way out and, and see what, what in the last few things I've gone over, the last few things I've read, what really sticks? What really sticks? And how can I connect those things? There's a, um, there's a model that Twyla Tharp, who's a, a famous choreographer and dancer, whenever she's building a show, she puts all these artifacts in a tool, in a, in a shoebox, little snippets, images, things like that. And I think of that sometimes where I'll, I'll have always have an outline going and I'm always kind of moving things around in the outline and saying, what would this look like? How does that fit in? So I'm continually like, like you sort of, it's like an inhale, exhale. And I'd say it's like 50, 50, like you're bringing new stuff in and then you've got to figure out where it fits. Um, and then sometimes depending on, on, on what's, on what's going on, putting something away for a long time and then coming back to it can really be a, a way of reflecting about it and seeing it in new eyes. Um, but I'm always taking little micro breaks. You know what I mean? In the day, it's not like I, my day isn't like, you know, crank uh, for just, you know, hours and hours. It's, it's, it's like 20, 30 minutes and then you take a little break and do something and then come back to it. I'm wondering for some of the, the, the books that, that you've done and some of the other projects you've been involved with, have they started from what you call dumb questions or? Big, or oh yeah. Always. Every time, every time, 
every time. What is talent? You know, how, why, why are people so good? You know, um, you know, I did, uh, did a book about cycling and Lance Armstrong and it started with the question of who is that guy? You know, really, we all know him, but we don't really know him, you know? So those sorts of questions where you're trying to just use curiosity as a way to dig slightly deeper. And for me, it's the mysteries that we live with every day, you know? Um, you know, whether it's in, you know, in sports, we're always sort of confronted with, oh, this person has, is there, this group is way better than us, or this, um, or this person is way better than us. And we have all this language to explain it. Like, you, you know, talk about team chemistry. Why do they win? Oh, they have great team chemistry. Well, then you have to ask the next question. What's that really? And the answer is nobody can, there, there's some, there's a decent amount of science that can dig into that, but there's a lot of easy answers that are on the surface that um, it's necessary to sort of stop and question them and say, chemistry, what is, what is that? What's that made of? Uh, I'm wondering, you just mentioned Lance. He, he's a character I'm fascinated by. What, what lasting impression did writing that book about Lance leave on you? Is there anything you still take away? And I, I know that you've said you don't really revisit your old books too frequently. Yeah. So I know you might need yeah. to search here, but I'm just curious. Yeah, no, I think it's the, the power and peril of having one way to look at the world. I think for somebody to really have a flourishing life, you've got to be good at perspective. Hmm. You can be, a, and the world is a very complex place, and there's a lot of different ways to look at it. And, and Lance was so single-minded <laughs> and so, so clear, and so much clarity on what he was doing um, that led him to do all kinds of, of, of things especially when it came to pushing the rules and, but he hasn't really evolved much. He hasn't really changed. So uh, on the one hand, there's tremendous power whenever you meet someone with that kind of clarity. And we do see that in our, in our business world, right? You know, actually we have a bunch of cautionary tales about sort of Lance-esque figures, you know, Elizabeth Holmes, Travis Kalanick, um, these people that are larger than life, these people who are, who possess these unbelievable powers. And I guess being really, really suspicious of that sort of mythos um, that comes from that sort of clarity. All these people have a ton of clarity and this mythos comes around, builds around them that they can solve any problem. And the truth is, it's just, there's nobody's Superman. And whenever you see a great success, it's always a team. It's never, it's never one person, never. And this myth of the heroic individual that I think Lance embodies is as we move forward in time, I think we're all seeing the hollowness of that. Um, and to your listeners who are trying to succeed and trying to do this rugged individual method of succeeding, I would say that's a, that is a hard road to go on, to actually think about what team are you on? Who are you with? When you, and you get two plus two equals 100 when you get on the right sort of team. Um, and you see that all over the place. Actually, I've been thinking about, you know, great pairs in business. It is not a coincidence that Buffett and Munger are together. It is not a coincidence that Lennon and McCartney were so good together. It is not a coincidence that, you know, I work a little bit with the Cleveland Guardians and there's a pair of people at the very top of that organization who operate as a, as a group brain, as a single person. And, and so the question that I think it asks people who are, who are moving up in their world is, who are, who's on your team? You know, who are you going to do this with? Because the odds of you being Superman are pretty long. Hmm. 
there's a great African pr proverb. It's if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I love that. Mm -hmm. It's just a great refresher. I, I want to jump back into clarity here in a second, but I would love to know, because I, I tend to ask this question. I feel like anyone who, who's involved in elite, elite, uh, let's just say the best of the best. Can you become the, the best in the world, let's say like a Lance or a Jordan, without this almost insane detrimental drive? I, I, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm trying to find an example of someone who is just like, there's no doubt the best in the world who doesn't have like horrible relationships or have done cutthroat things to get to the top. It's a great question. Um, I'd say you'd find some sort of groups of people who have done it, but it's hard. I'm having a hard, yo, 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 ma. I mean, I'll pick him. He's a very, you know, best cellist in the world. Um, you know, incredible communicator, incredible kind of big loving persona who's brought a lot of, a lot of good into the world. So it would depends on your domain. Yeah. I would say the more artistic the domain is, the more likely you're going to find someone like that, the more sort of metric oriented sports and business oriented that is the least less likely to be to find someone like that. Um, but yeah, what a, what a great question. That, that'd be a great uh, little investigation. Maybe you just found your big question to investigate. There we go. I guess me, me asking some dumb questions here, it, it tends to work out sometimes. But uh, Daniel, I, I know you're a fan of uh, Boyd Vardy's book, The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life, and you were mentioning clarity a second ago. There was this line in the book, and it's, I don't know where I'm going, but I know exactly how I'll get there. And mm -hmm. I would love to just know how you think about this, right? Like we're always talking about clarity, goals, we need this exactly mapped out. And you said a lot of your great successes have come from asking dumb questions and not being exactly sure. So I'm just wondering how you think about that in your own life. Yeah, I make a distinction and I, I, I make a distinction between there's two kinds of systems and two kinds of problems in the world. Uh, there's ones that are sort of complicated and they're linear. There's cause and effect, right? It's like A goes to B goes to C goes to D. It's problems like how do I build this house, right? I, 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 if I give me an instruction piece, uh, give me the right equipment. If we, if we put it together the right way, it will be the same every time. That's one type of problem. But there's another kind of problem that's complex. It's complex. And that's where every time you do something, the problem shifts, right? So it's not building a house, it's raising a teenager, right? Because every time you do something in the problem, the problem changes and it changes you too, right? So I would say most of these things, and the reason I responded to Boyd's book um, like I did, is that I think he's talking about complexity. I think he's talking about sensing patterns of energy, which sounds really woo-woo, but uh, sensing something, sensing something really interesting, sensing something that attracts you. In complexity theory, in fact, there's this, this term called attractor, right? It's an attractor. An attractor is something that, that draws attention and energy to it. One simple way to, to explain attractors that this guy, Dave Snowden, if you're interested in complexity theory, Dave Snowden is a great person to follow and read. Um, he has this beautiful comparison to a birthday party. He says, if you were to run a birthday party like it was a linear system, like it was just cause and effect, um, you would have a presentation at the beginning where you would have some, some milestones you'd want your kids to hit at the birthday party. You would, you would give them an evaluation at the end. Um, of course, we don't do that, right? It's complex. We try things. We throw a soccer ball into the room and something happens. And if they break a window, then we take the soccer ball away. But if they start having fun, then we go with that, right? That's how life is. It functions around attractors. So the, the question of pondering, and I think some of these big mysteries that you see that you've sensed in your own life, I think your listeners probably do too, they're these things we're attracted by, these questions, these mysteries that are not linear. They're not like Legos. They're big, weird questions. And, and so chasing that, 
um, tracking that line, if you will, is, is a great way. You don't know exactly where you're going to go, but you, you kind of have a sense of process because you're going to follow your nose to the next step. And then what's, then you're going to look up, what's the next attractor? I'm going to go over here. You can look up, what's the next one? It's not complicated. It's complex. And in complexity, you got to be probing and looking and reevaluating and thinking and chasing. It's much more like tracking a lion than, you know, building Legos. So I think that's one of the reasons that when you ask people for their career plan, if they've got it all planned out, that's a reason to be concerned about them. Yeah. Actually, you yeah. know, because you can't, life isn't that way. Life isn't complicated. Life is complex. Yeah. Children's birthday party is definitely not complicated. I, I had a, uh, a real life Mickey Mouse show up to my son's birthday. He started going hysterically crying. That got complex pretty quickly. So we, we had to get Mickey Mouse oh, out awesome. of there. But um, I, I'm wondering for your own life, right? Just like that initial gut feel uh, following those attractors for yourself. T- talk to me about how you initially became fascinated by culture and like what were the early days like and what were you doing? Yeah, you know, I guess a lot of different pieces to that. I mean, one was, you know, I, I've had recently, you know, I had, had a bunch of young kids, had four kids. And so it's like, what are we going to be? We're a group, right? Well, how are we going to get along? What's that going to be like? I've said, I know great families. I know families that don't like to be around each other. Which one are we going to be? Um, that was that was definitely an attractor for me. Um, in the course of writing The Talent Code, I had gone into a lot of different spaces that had produced all these great performers. And some of them felt amazing you know, like a school or a music school or a little league field. And there was a, a level of energy and interest and passion there that I just hadn't seen. And so as I studied those individuals, I became interested in, in that. So that was, that was also kind of an attractor. And it was, you know, it was kind of a natural extension too. I sort of liked the attraction of, okay, I've looked at individuals. Now let's combine those. That, that, the, the, poetry of that sort of was an attractor for me too. Like I want to extend this and see where it leads me. Um, and I guess, you know, deep in my own life, like I grew up with a couple brothers and we were always kind of competing from a very young age, you know, one of us, we were one year apart. And so that also was part of it too, where I had a keen interest in, in performance. So um, yeah, it was a bunch of, it was a bunch of stuff. And I guess the last thing was that I was, I do some consulting uh, with with the Cleveland Guardians, and I you know go down there one day a week, and and so I was also that was also on my mind too. Like I wonder how I can help them um, by learning about the best practices of other great groups. So like with anything, it wasn't any clean, clear, um, you know, sort of plug and play sort of project. It was just more like, huh, there's a lot of magnets there, and I want to check it out. I'm wondering for yourself, you starting to see these magnets come together. When, when do you finally make the jump and be like, you know what, this is actually a full-blown book here that I'm going to commit the vast amount of time that you do towards making that project come alive? Yeah, you sort of do these little probes and test it, you know, and you talk about it with people. That's a big thing when you actually find yourself on the phone with someone and they say, what are you doing? Which people tend to do sometimes. And you start talking about it and you sense yeah. if they're just like, like I would talk about this project or the culture project. And I would say like, yeah, I'm thinking about visiting like the most high performing groups in the world and seeing what patterns they share. And people would be like, whoa. Yeah. And, and okay. <laughs> all right. Proof of concept. Like in the whoa is something. Cause I've definitely had things where I explain something I'm excited about. And the reaction is, huh, it's not, it's not, whoa. So you kind of look for the whoa. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, your book, The Culture Code, like I mentioned at the beginning of this, was just so impactful for me and so many other people in my life that run sports teams, organizations, it doesn't matter. The, the examples you use have been incredibly impactful. That, that's why I love now that you came out with The Culture Code Handbook, where it's like, okay, mm-hmm. these are actionable insights that, that we can take and use with our own, our own organization. So I, I want to dive further here into culture. And you kind of define culture as your culture equals your actions. And there was a line you had, it's, I believe culture doesn't depend on who you are, but on what you do. Culture is not a gift you received. It's a skill you learn. And unlike any skill, it can be done well or poorly. So I would love for you just to unpack culture because I know there's a, a lot of views people have and just how you think about it to set the context here. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, there's a, there's a way that we have of understanding culture that we've kind of inherited. Um, and, and the traditional way to understand culture is that it's sort of like the personality of a group, right? Like, oh, Google has that Google culture and the Navy SEALs have that Navy SEAL culture. And it's kind of like who they are. It's, it's in their DNA. And that's, um, that's wrong. That's vague. Um, it, it's not true. Uh, obviously, cultures shift and change. They're not locked in. And, but that, that's, it feels right enough to where that we kind of buy it. And so that makes us treat it like it's a, like it's a gift, right? Like, like, oh, we just are who we are. This is who we are. And in fact, when you scratch the surface on great cultures and embed with them and, and also look at the research, what you find is that they have this, this sort of signature fingerprint of behaviors. It's not about the, the words you say to each other. It's about the behaviors you have. And there's certain functional behaviors that will make a big impact. There's certain, it's, it's like, you know, your, your, your culture is a social body of people. And just like your actual body of people, there are certain systems you have, like, you know, your, your heart and your blood, you know, moves energy around your body. Well, safety works that way in, in groups, right? That's how this function of safety, these behaviors of safety, these belonging cues are the things that let us know we're connected let us know we're safe. And now we can really be a part of the group, right? And then sharing vulnerability. That's how we share information. That's how we, we create a group brain by being transparent with each other so we can self-navigate and self-organize around different problems. And then we need to have a navigational function, and that's purpose. Um, how do we know where to go? Well, we have a really, really clear North Star that we talk about all the time that we um, reflect on all the time, that we measure ourselves by all the time. And that's how, and I guess for a visual, the the visual that I keep going back to for culture, any cultural group is a flock of birds flying through a forest at high speed. You got to stay connected, right? If you start spinning off and getting split up, you're not going to fall. You got to stay connected. That's safety. That's how we do that. We share a future. I hear your voice. You matter to me, right? And then we got to share information because we got to get around that tree and then the next tree and we can't have it's not like there's one bird with a headset saying like, everyone turn 20 degrees to the left. Everyone turn to the right now. No, everybody's got to see the same thing so they can do the same thing. And that's where sharing weakness and vulnerability comes in. We're not going to hide our weaknesses from each other. We're going to be transparent. We're going to show it. And then we got to know where we're headed. And that's where purpose comes in. So, you know, people commit, is, is, there's some kind of predictable sins that people always do when they're starting to put together a culture. Um, But if you think about these basic functions, how can we stay together? How can we share information and where are we going? That's, that will lead you to the behaviors that you need to have in order to function that way. Okay. So the bedrock, basically safety, vulnerability, and purpose, those three are really going to make that foundation up. I'm wondering about vulnerability then. I feel like this is uh, something I've been talking about more and more with leaders of organizations and teams where, where they're trying to go first with that vulnerability. But I'm wondering through your eyes, what does shared vulnerability look like at 
at an elite level, like with great cultures? What, what are some of those things that they're doing? Yeah, I was, I was having breakfast with a Navy SEAL commander named Dave Cooper, um, and he's the command master chief of Navy SEAL Team 6, recently retired at the time. And he said the four most important words a, word can, a leader can say are, I screwed that up, hmm. which really captures it, really. Uh, it, it, it is about sharing truth, no matter how uncomfortable. It is about learning together. It's about learning together. There's a, vulnerability has moved into the culture in, in a huge way in the last few years, right? Through the work of Brene Brown and others, we talk a lot about vulnerability. In the context of elite teams, vulnerability is less about drama and more about insight, more about sharing and figuring out what's really going on together. You know, the Navy SEALs are probably the best at it. You know, they do something called an AAR after every mission, after every training run. And they circle up in this remarkable exercise in vulnerability and they say, hey, before they eat, before they sleep, right? Circle up. We just did this hard thing together. What went wrong? Let's talk about it. What went right? Let's talk about it. What are we doing differently next time? Let's talk about that. It's a hard meeting to have. It's really hard. You have people saying, I screwed that up. I think you screwed that up. I think we screwed that up. I think that was terrible. I think that was great. It, it, is a, it is a really, really difficult conversation, but it's the most important one because you're in that vulnerability loop. You're creating space so that you can figure stuff out together and look at it clearly. So it's not about necessarily emotion drama. It's, around, it's about learning from the truth of what happened. Yeah. I know you mentioned culture as a whole is a skill that we can learn, we can develop. So I'm just thinking about organizations that just, they, they don't have this type of accountability. They don't have this type of sharing. What have you seen in organizations that have been able to develop this skill further? Is there anything that people can start doing? You, you have leaders modeling it. That is huge. That gives people permission to do that. Um, and, you know, having that, to me, that that's step one. And the second is start building a habit, like an AAR is a perfect sort of little mini habit to do it in. It, it's a short meeting. It doesn't take much time. It's incredibly powerful, if, especially if you do it, maybe do it without the boss, Maybe make sure the, the most powerful person uh, speaks speaks first and make sure everybody speaks. Um, it, they're little painful exercises that will, in that pain, create, like, like, just like exercising your body, in that pain, you actually get growth. Another one would be the, the two-line email. You, you send it to the people you work with and you say, hey, tell me one thing you'd like me to keep doing and tell me one thing you'd like me to stop doing right? Kind of a hard email to send in some ways, right? Signal of vulnerability, but it's around this getting better question. And that's where the most effective vulnerability is. It's built around how can we get better together? There's a great example of it. I was uh, talking with an engineer at Google and they were recounting a story that had happened to them when they had worked at Pixar 15 years earlier. They were working at Pixar as a young engineer and the boss came along and was kind of watching them. The boss was Ed Catmull, um, who's one of the most brilliant people in Hollywood and or Silicon Valley. And Camel's watching him for a while and the young engineers are getting kind of nervous. Like, why is the boss like checking us out? What's going on? And like anybody, you know, you start sort of worrying about that. And at the very end, Catmull walked up to them and said, hey, when you guys are done here, could you come up to my office and teach me how to do that? Like, what an incredible moment. The guy got goosebumps talking about it 15 years later because it was such a great signal of like, I really want to learn. 
And when the leader is modeling that, that is that is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And so that's the phenomenon that you have at great groups. You can tell it's a great group because you can't tell who's in charge hmm. because everybody is fixated on this question of how can we get a little bit better? And there, there, there's a voice going in every direction. That's another kind of misconception that people have about safety. We talk a lot about safety, but safety is not actually about safety. Safety is not actually about comfort. Safety is about voice. Safety is about having a room where every single person feels confident and secure and empowered to say, hey, I think we're going down the wrong road. I think we missed something. I think we have a better opportunity over here and to knock and to knock that around. I heard There's you. a misconception that, that, you know, that great cultures are like happy cultures and they're not, I mean, they're not, they're, they're, they're happy in a deep way. They're happy, but they're not, uh, you know, they're not operating on some higher plateau where every, there's no disagreement. There's actually more disagreements at good cultures. Cause you got to let the ideas fight it out. You got to have the best idea win. And you have people have these sort of vivid, intense discussions, and then they go out for a beer afterwards. That's a good culture. A bad culture is where everybody agrees with everything and there's no bad ideas and people don't go out for a beer afterwards if there is a dispute. So having, having, those, having a place where it is safe to, to voice different ideas and to explore those ideas and to let those ideas fight it out until the best one wins. Yeah, I have a highlight from one of your books, and I just have a note next to it, Misconceptions About Culture. And your line was, strong cultures wrestle with plenty of problems, disagree vigorously, and fail with regularity. The difference is strong cultures experience these problems, disagreements, and failures within bonds of strong, secure connection, and they use them as leverage to learn and improve. I thought that was just a great articulation of what we get wrong about cultures and what really strong cultures actually look like. They're messy, right? Like the, the world's comp, are complex, like you said in the beginning here. Uh, I think that's just really important to know because so often we think it needs to be perfect and that's just not the case. You, you were mentioning safety a second ago and then I heard you tell this story about Steve Kerr with mm. one of his interns. And mm. do, do you know what I'm talking about here? Yeah. You, can yeah. you share the story? Because I think this shows yeah. such an amazing yeah, job. I, I spent a chunk of the year in Cleveland, Ohio. And if some years ago we were getting our butts kicked by the Golden State Warriors. And we had, I think it was it might have been game six or seven of the, the first time they met in the finals. And they were having trouble with LeBron, uh, like any team would. And they were trying to figure out how to defense LeBron in the next game. And one of the film interns, one of the video interns uh, on the Golden State Warriors staff suggested a different way to defend him. And Steve Kerr not only heard that suggestion, he employed that suggestion in the game and LeBron didn't go off and the Golden State Warriors won, won the game. And um, despite the fact that it was for the other side, I could not help but really admire because we got beat by their culture, right? We got beat by a leader who was fallible enough to say and curious enough and secure and confident enough and created a room in which that could happen. And I think that there's so many examples through history and in, in, uh, not just in sports of great ideas really can come from anywhere. And great cultures are great because they let that powerless person share and speak. I saw a really similar thing at Pixar. They have a thing where they show drafts of their movies that are in progress to the whole staff. The baristas get to see them. Everybody gets to see them, right? And people can plus them. That's the process. They call it plussing. And I met a software engineer who, for a draft of the movie Up, 
had suggested some change in the Boy Scouts, Boy Scout badge, like the Boy Scout and up had a badge. And he had a little visual joke that he wanted to do with that badge. Like, it'd be kind of funny if they had a badge that, you know, had some wink to Pixar. And his suggestion was accepted. And they did it. It's the film intern all over again. They get a good idea. They can come from anywhere. And to harvest and maximize that, you use safety to create voice to generate innovation. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story because I hear that and I'm thinking about all the other leaders of organizations hearing this story and just thinking of themselves like, have I created the space where I'm taking ideas but also people feel safe enough to bring these ideas up and just the, yeah. the power that that can have on an organization. I, I just love that. It, it makes me also think about building connection and you tell a great story about when the San Antonio Spurs were looking to draft Tim Duncan and mm. just the, the connection that Popovich built with him when he went down to visit Tim before they drafted them. Can you share that? Because I think it shows how deep these great organizations, these great teams, the length they go to to build connection because of its importance. Yeah, Popovich is the king, the king connector, really. And, and this was before he was Popovich, right? This was, I think he was the GM of the team and he had signed on to coach him. He had sort of assigned himself to coach this failing team and they had the number one choice and there was no doubt who it was going to be. Popovich flew to the U.S. Virgin Islands where, where Tim Duncan, who was going to clearly be the number one pick, was, and then spent four days there visiting, not talking about basketball, not talking about everything else, talking about the history of the island, talking about family, talking about cuisine, talking about food and wine. Um, and that is his approach. And, and it's, 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 it's uniquely powerful, but every other, a lot of other good leaders had that same intense curiosity about the person and an intense appreciation for the relationship. Pop does another one of my favorite things at the end of every year, he will uh, go to the players and say, thank you for allowing me to coach you. It's a pretty incredible thing. It doesn't take long to say, right? It takes two seconds to say. Now, he doesn't have to do that. They are both amply compensated for coaching and for playing. But to say that is to express and signal with behavior an intense appreciation for the relationship itself, for the space between those people. And that's that's where the, the good stuff happens. That's where the magic happens. To overthink, I think that's one of the tips I have in the book, and I see that at every good, at every good culture. Because overthinking, like he's doing there, is not actually overthinking. It is an appropriate and and timely expression of appreciation for a living relationship. And relationships are what groups are made of. So if you're not taking time to like appreciate those relationships and express that appreciation, then you're you're leaving something. You're leaving something that you some fuel that that you might otherwise use. You mentioned intense curiosity. I feel like that's a pretty good descriptor of you. So I'm wondering when you, when you go into an organization, like what are you thinking about? What are you analyzing just with that intense curiosity that you have? Yeah, I think I I, I, appropriate, I I do this circle method where I'll try to gather everything I can about the organization before I visit. Mm -hmm. Because when I go there, I want every second to be very rich. I want to be able to interpret, oh, that's, you know, when I went to visit, you know, San Antonio Spurs, I, I knew the coaching staff. I knew their background. That's the, the coach from Israel. That's the coach who's the shooting coach. And just to, to really be able not to be so you could fully observe what they're doing and not be sort of learning stuff, basic stuff beforehand. And then, and then spend as much time as you can just kind of fly on the wall, observing, 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 looking for patterns, looking for 
you know, and then, then sort of peeling off with other conversations, it ends up being kind of, you circle in and then you sort of circle out and, and talk to other people too, you know, sort of triangulate with our other organizations and other leaders. So it varies and, and it's not all super productive. Like a lot, you end up spending a lot of time, you know, probably out of a hundred notebook note filled pages, I write probably two end up in the, in the book. You know, it's not a really high batting average, um, but if you can stay there long enough and observe enough and ask enough kind of dumb questions, you can you can usually get somewhere new. And the main thing that is fun to explore is like, tell me about your work. Like, how do you approach your day? How do you solve that problem? People love to talk about their work, no matter, you know, people love to talk about work. And, and it's not, I'm not trying to get super personal with anybody, but I'm really trying to get tactical with them and say, oh, you've got... Okay, you're a coach. You've got um, some some players that don't seem to get along with other players. How do you? What do you do then? What do you do? Tell me. You know, and and people love to talk about that. So I'd love getting. Ta- I would love to know actually, like what you do. Great. I mean, you you got this incredible like tapestry of different stories, analogies. You've got this amazing connection that you've built with a large group of individuals and organizations. It's like, what are you doing behind the scenes that people don't see, and we just see the best-selling culture code book. And it's like, oh, no, no, no. It was all of these things, right? Like you mentioned, Pop did that before he was Popovich, but it's like, he's Popovich because he did those things. So it's like, what's mm-hmm. Daniel Coyle been doing for 20 years now? Wow. I don't know. Being curious, I guess. I guess one thing that sort of happens behind the scenes is I'm trying to build bridges between these organizations because I think they, and they want to build bridges. They're very, they're the way they are because they're very curious about leadership. They're very curious about performance. They're very curious about culture. And so one of the fun things that has, that has been kind of at the core of this latest, these latest projects for the last, you know, 10 years or so has been asking the question, Oh, who had, who has the most to learn from this? You know, which, which people that I know would most enjoy meeting. And that's been kind of fun and gratifying to build those bridges and connect those dots. You know, we had a, we had a coach from San Antonio, a brilliant coach named Chip England, came to Cleveland and he did a, a seminar for Cleveland Guardians coaches. And it was amazing. We videotaped the coaches coaching a player they had never met before. And then we had Chip had the coaches walk through their videotape. Players get taped all the time, right? We evaluate players all the time. But to give coaches an opportunity to evaluate themselves on videotape was really special and cool. And it was the kind of cross-pollination that that was you know made possible by these you know the conversation that started with me researching the book so it's and this area of performance is filled with super curious really interesting people that are that are dying to have these conversations across domains the hockey people really, really want to talk to the tech people, really, really want to talk to the golf people, really, really want to talk to the military people. So it's like to create those kind of conversations is, is, really, is really fun. Who's coming to mind for you when you mention those people that are just trying to, that they would love to sit down with another organization? Is, does someone come to mind for you? R.C. Buford at San Antonio is always, he's an incredible learner. Um, He's amazing. And there's, there's a whole number of people in the military community that are absolutely brilliant at this. One of them works, um, works for the Cleveland Guardians, a guy named Jay Hennessy, who used to be in the Navy SEALs and who has um, been a real uh, just 
incredible connector uh, for these kinds of conversations. One of the concepts that you write about that I, I just I just really enjoyed was shallow fun versus deep fun, and yeah. I think I think I think it's going to wake up a lot of people uh, to this, and I, I would just love to hear you talk about it. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, there are two kinds of fun in the world, right? You know, there's pleasure. That's shallow fun. That's ping pong. That's an IPA at five o'clock with your friends. Um, it's stuff that is literally enjoyable, right? And there's a lot of of organizations and cultures that have said we have to have high engagement. We're going to have fun stuff, and they've and they've embraced these kinds of things, right? The office is filled with Nerf guns and ping pong tables, and it's pleasure and fun. But the problem with that kind of fun is it only exists as long as you're having it. Like it's, it, it's kind of like a sugar high. It's, it's delightful. And then it wears off, but there's a different kind of fun in life. And it's, it's called deep fun where you are taking more ownership. You're making more investment. It's sort of um, uh, more like the fun you'd have on a, on a camping trip, you know, where you're in charge of stuff. It's kind of painful you know, to get there, but the delight uh, of being in control of the experience uh, is much deeper and much more relational and much more connective. Uh, there's a there's a company in Michigan I recently heard about, and they were looking to find the they wanted to they self organized to put together a team of people to find the best coffee on the planet. Like that, they wanted to bring that back to their little office, right? Best, so we need to find the best bean, the best roaster, um, the best machine. And this team got really into it where they did all this research and all these presentations and all these tastings. And sure enough, they brought it back. It's kind of cool. They took ownership over this. That's deep fun. Deep fun is when, you know, you give people, when people have a budget to decorate the conference room they want the way they want to. The U.S. women's national soccer team has a lot of deep fun stuff. They'll redesign their jerseys and put the names of their heroes on the back of it instead of their own names. Um, they fight for equal pay, right? They take control of the work experience. And so that's a really, I think it's a really powerful concept because if you're going to have a great culture, shallow fun's fine. Everyone should have it. It's great. But but this, this second type, this deep fun where you're asking your people, what can we do to make life here better? Like what, what exactly should we dig into? What should we change to make life here better? And then doing it like that, that is the thing that really creates culture. That makes me think you said, and then actually doing it right. Like your culture is your actions. What have you seen that prohibits people from taking the actions they know they should take? Right? Like we all fall victim to this. There, there's a million things we know we should be doing, but we don't. And I'm wondering what you found in organizations, why they don't end up taking those actions. Like you say, it's a million, a million reasons. Yeah. Down deep, sort of fear of change. I mean, that, that it feels weird. I'm going to have to go look for coffee. Like I have a, I have a job to do, you know? Yeah. Um, that reflexive, you know, compliance, obedience, that's one. Lack of modeling, like, like if, if it, lack of being given permission and by permission, I don't mean verbal permission. I mean behavioral permission. Like the second that coffee group got back from Michigan, that freed everybody up. That gave everybody permission to do similar sorts of things. Let's 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 have a weight room in the office. Okay, let's let's make it happen. We want to have we want to have some weights so people can can work out here in the office. Let's let's do that. Right. It gives people permission to do that. So it's not something that can happen verbally. It needs to happen through behaviors. Um, there's a quote, I think I have it in the book where it said, um, you know, change is not an information tsunami. It's a behavioral epidemic. 
And so establishing that behavior, spotlighting that behavior, celebrating that behavior can be one of the coolest things that you can do to free, get people away from that fear. And that fear, it, it shouldn't, fear makes it sound like we're blaming them for it. That, that's a really natural human way to respond, right? It's a very natural human response to not want to do that stuff um, and not want to get engaged in that way. And so um, maybe it's not fear so much as it is just sort of natural hesitation. Hmm. Do you know what coffee it was that the group came I don't. Out? I got to find out. That's a great question. I know. We can I, one of the things that I think your work has been so helpful for me, you were mentioning modeling a second ago. You provide great models. This is an Ed Catmull Pixar. Pixar. This is what he does. So then I can think about the model. Someone I've been fascinated with for years um, who you've written about is Danny Meyer. And I'm wondering, what are some of the things that you've seen Danny do over the years? Oh my God, endless. I mean, he, he's the best. I mean, no, I, I'm a I'm definitely a, a sort of a groupie. Like when you ask him, he's so other focused. I think that's the magic. He disappears. When you talk to him, he's, he's just interested in you. If you ask him, like he's, he's really, you know, knows a lot about food. And I think I asked him, what, what's, what's the best hamburger? And he says, what are you hungry for? Isn't that a great response? Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's really up to, you know, that, that, that's, that's really interesting. He could have, he had all the authority. He could have just, you know, he could have just Encyclopedia Britannica me and been like, well, the keys to a good hamburger, Dan, or you need to toast the bun or whatever. Right. Um, and, but that's not how he operates. He's, he operates out of this intense curiosity um, that, that I think is really special. He also has a real, um, a real way with words. Uh, or, or he's, he's, a, he's a brilliant communicator and he's very careful and clear with language. Um, I think, and, and you see that in the way he talks and in the kind of mantras that he creates for his restaurants. Um, and, you know, for instance, their North Star is sort of, is creating raves, which is a really interesting selection of words, right? It's not being successful or making a lot of money or making great food or winning awards, creating raves. That's kind of cool, right? There's a little mystery there. Um, there's clearly some beneficial outcome there, uh, but it's not, you know, financial or culinary. It's, it's in the creating, isn't that a great word? You're creating it. There's some little magic there. So he's very good at, at, at language and in curiosity. Um, and he's also very transparent. He's very kind of open about his flaws and foibles. There was a night after he opened, <laughs> the first time he opened a restaurant, he had a really rude guest and he got into a fist fight with a guest. Yeah, I remember reading about that. <laughs> he tells the whole story and it is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. And, and I'm sure his lawyers are like trying to tackle him and tell him, don't tell that story, Danny. Like that is a terrible story. But he goes, I got really mad and this guy was an ass. And so I just went after him and, it's, <laughs> and they're tumbling out the door. You know, he's, He's trying to make his restaurant work and he is brawling with his customer. So um, that kind of combination of, of kind of linguistic precision, curiosity, and, and disarming openness is just incredible to see. Yeah, some of the things that are kind of tying a few of those themes together, I'm thinking about our communication, right? Like you mentioned being transparent, um, some of the mantras he says, some of the phrases he uses. Can you just hit on communication as a whole? Because it was actually one of my coaches, this was in college, who read something that you had written and actually dealt with communication of teams and the number of times that they communicate and all of those little yep. things. So I'm just wondering how you think through communication at this stage. 
Yeah, it is fascinating, you know, because there is this, and John Wooden was really the, the one who captured this in his very simple saying, you haven't taught till they've learned, mm-hmm. right? You haven't taught till they've learned. And, and a lot of communication, you are trying to teach and, and impart new information. And this, that idea, I think we, we inherited an idea that teaching was talking and communication was talking, that it was on our end. If we said it, then we're good, right? I communicated. Um, and what you find with great leaders is that they are much less self-focused on them. They're much more other focused on what's the impact to those words? How did my words change the way that person is thinking? And how can I see that that happened? Because when you think deeply about communication, it's kind of crazy, right? I'm going to conceptualize some words. I'm going to push air out of my mouth and make sounds with those words. Those are going to, sounds are going to go in your, your ear. They're going to activate all kinds of concepts and emotions and ideas and then you're going to try to be changed by that. Like, it's kind of nuts. Like, it, it, it shouldn't work, right? It's very, very uh, fragile and strange with all kinds of opportunities at each step in the way for things to be completely sideways, which is why great communicators continually are honing their message, continually are learning, getting feedback, what worked, what didn't work, what is going to resonate with this person and they're not interested in the fact that they said it. They're interested in, did the other person absorb it? Did the other person hear it? Did the other person, was the other person changed by it? Um, and so the great communicators are the best listeners. Like that's what they're actually good at, right? They're actually great listeners because they are picking up on signals and probing again and picking up on signals and probing again. I saw, I know you from a sports background and, I remember watching Tom Martinez, who was Tom Brady's quarterback coach when Tom Brady was a teenager. And they were talking about taking the snap and getting the ball up to your shoulder to throw. And he had like five different ways to describe it. Like, like pretend like there's a rocket taking off and, or pretend like you are smoothly starting a lawnmower. And he had like five different ways to do it. And he would, sort of offer those over and over again to people until he saw what stuck, right? And then he'd be like, okay, so that, that works for that guy. And, and that same kind of, a lesser coach would have just had one way to do it and would have used that image and that would have been it. And, but that's why Tom Martinez was a great, great coach because he wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't focused on what he was saying. He was focused on the impact of what he was saying. It gets back to what you said about Danny Meyer, other focused and just the importance of that. That's what some of the great leaders do. Daniel, your books are just filled with so many examples, stories like that. Like I mentioned, the Culture Code Handbook, which is out now. That's why I love it brings so many of these exercises that you as leaders and even anyone in the organization can implement. Um, so that's, of course, going to be linked up in the show notes there, all, all your work, all your books, because every single one is sitting on my bookshelf. Uh, there, there's a few other just questions I would, I would love to ask you since I've got you on the call here. If there was an organization that you could go into, and it doesn't have to be a present-day organization, but you, th- you were just fascinated by and would love to just sit down and really learn from, who comes to mind for you? I don't know, the Revolutionary Army in like 1776. Like, how did they do it? You know, I'm kind of kind of interested in that. Um, I'm interested in the Jesuits. I think they're super fascinating. Like they've been around for hundreds and hundreds of years and they've sort of thrived. And there aren't many organizations. The average age of any kind of business venture, I think is on the Fortune 500 is like 15 years now. Um, so how did they do that? Um, you know, I think in 
and especially in this era where we're, I think we're kind of losing, we're kind of learning that the myth of the heroic individual leader is, is pretty hollow. I'd be interested in finding like the guy behind the guy, you know, like, like I think anytime you've got a great organization, you've got kind of these, these hidden, very impactful people like, you know, it's a weird example, but like Thomas Cromwell in the court of King Henry VIII, like there's a series of great books written about Thomas Cromwell. He's just, he's in on everything. He's organizing everything. He understands everything. And he's kind of out of the main picture for most of his career. So I think that those kind of people fascinate me a lot right now, trying to figure out what what that is, what that's made of and what that skill set is, is about. Yeah. Are there a few other, just what you call dumb questions that have, you've been thinking about the last year? Cause I, I know just to the process of your book, like it was already written, putting it out now and things like that. What are you thinking about what's capturing your attention right now? Yeah, I guess kind of questions about well-being. I mean, in the world of success, there's a lot of, there's a lot of extremely successful people who, to your point earlier, are extremely unhappy. Um, or who have sacrificed family and everything else in the name on the altar of success. And so I find myself kind of interested in those questions of, you know, what's a good life made of? What's, what's well-being all about? Um, uh, softer stuff, maybe a little harder to explore in a scientific way, but I, I find myself really drawn to it. And maybe it's just because where I'm at in my life right now, but um, you know, what's, what's that about? Any models there that you're you're looking at, or just, um, you know, I went to a Grateful Dead show for the first, or, or actually a Dead and Company show uh, this past summer. It's like that's a pretty happy family. Um, they were sort of a model, I guess. Uh, yeah, there's there's uh, you know the, there's a lot of models of people that probably shouldn't have been um, shouldn't have functioned well, but they did. Uh, I think of the Chilean miners, you know, 33 people a mile underground for weeks and months and they, they functioned quite well. I think that's kind of an interesting case of people uh, who, you know, came together to create a lot of well-being where there probably should have been none. Hmm. And then final one here, if you could do this long form conversation, sit down with anyone dead or alive. I know you mentioned a few groups. Is there anyone you would just love to do this with? Wow. I'm going to pick like some ancestor of mine. I mean, that's what I'm kind of interested in. You had some ancestors come over from Ireland and Germany in the, in the, in the 1800s. Um, I guess I'd, I'd be really super interested in that. Uh, as far as other sort of, you know, leaders right now that are super fascinating, I'm going to, you know, I can't get on the, you know, I, I I'm a, I'm a skeptic on Musk. Like I just don't believe, I, I think he's in the same kind of, mythology land as, as some of these other people we've seen recently. He's, he's fascinating. Um, but I have, a, I have a hard time. I think I'd want to sit down with like uh, the Beatles. I mean, after watching that get back documentary, I think that, that I'd be, I'd be all about that. Now that you mentioned it, any other like documentaries, books, things like that, that you're just like, Oh, this is exceptional. And you just have gone back to or recommend. Yeah, I think Ed Cavill's book Creativity Inc. is really an eternal, an evergreen, wonderful, wonderful book. Um, super good. Adam Grant Think Again is great. Uh, that is that is absolutely fantastic. Um, and what else? Uh, the the Lion Tracker's Guard to Life. I really really do enjoy that one. Um, 
yeah, there's so much good stuff out there right now. It's kind of a kind of a embarrassment of riches in, in books these days. Yeah, and if anyone wants to take a d- deeper dive on Think Again by Adam Grant or Boyd Vardy's Lion Tracker's Guide to Life, we've got extensive book recaps at whatgotyouthere.com. But those are two fascinating reads. And then Ed Catmill, I mean, he's just a legend there at Pixar Inc. And uh, speaking of legends, Daniel, seriously, this was years in the making here. I appreciate you coming on, sharing more. Of course, we're going to have the Culture Code Handbook, the Culture Code, all your work linked up. But anywhere you want the listeners going so they can stay connected with you, yeah, danielcoyle.com. Is, uh, so you can hit a link and send me an email if anybody has any questions or wants to take this conversation any further. Make it easy. But Daniel Coyle, I seriously cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You Here. Totally fine. Thank you, Sean. Really enjoyed it. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.